talking about context tonight and how important context is. This is a lesson for Bible students. And who here should be a Bible student? Every single one of us should be a Bible student. And context is everything. Context will keep you from getting in trouble. Context will keep you from being afraid when someone says, oh, the Bible says this, and they come with such some outlandish thing that they found in Ezekiel somewhere. It says, the prophets are saying that what's happening today has all been said before. And, well, maybe, maybe not. Always look at the context. By the way, I hope you don't mind these glasses. These are readers. These aren't my prescription. I left my prescriptions out in the car. No big deal. If you don't mind, I'll wear these. I'll just look like this hat, yeah. <laughs> I hope everyone's familiar with this passage. I hope you'll familiarize yourself with it tonight. If you're not, 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to do what? To show yourself or present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the New King James Rightly dividing the word of truth. That's kind of an odd way to say it, isn't it? Rightly dividing, but that's what you do with the word. You, you divide it, you put it together the way it's supposed to be. You separate what, what doesn't go with each other and put it together with what does go together. The New American Standard has it this way, accurately handling. That's a good interpretation, a good uh, presentation of what's said in the word. Handling the word accurately. There are people who seem to think that the Bible can be made to say about anything you want it to. But when you look at a passage of Scripture, how many ways is there to look at that passage that's right? Only one. God didn't give us passages of Scripture that can be interpreted multiple ways. It is our job as students of Him and His Word To find what that text is saying. And he has given us, I say again, he has given us everything we need to determine truth from every passage of scripture. And sometimes I believe what he has done with some of those is to challenge us to make the searching out of that truth to be an exercise that will make us grow intellectually and spiritually and will also humble us. I've known a lot of Bible scholars in my short time on the earth, and I haven't known a single one who knew everything. And I knew a lot of those scholars who lovingly disagreed with one another on different points of interest in the scriptures. So all of us have a responsibility to go to the word and make the best use of it we can and be as responsible as we can. And when we are talking to other people about it, therefore... To be as loving with it as we can. Because, well, I'll just ask you. Have you ever changed your mind about anything you thought the Bible said? Okay. If you have, you know that that's a very real possibility. So hold on to what you believe you know as firmly as you can. But always be ready to to look at it in a way that sheds more light on it if you find more light. If you don't find more light, don't change. And the word is where you'll find your light. So these two passages about rightly dividing or accurately handling the word should be on our hearts and minds at all times. What? 
pulling something out of context. This is in the Bible. He threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. Then Jesus said to him, Go thou and do the same. I'm telling you, every word of that is in the Bible. What's the problem? They don't go together. Those are two passages that don't go together. I I hope I don't need to tell you that, but I'll use this as an illustration, that sometimes when you pull something out of context or look at it out of context, it, it can make you feel kind of funny later when you realize what you've done. Here's another one. Come again. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. Now, what's the second line about? The woman was beautiful and intelligent and beautiful in appearance. Who's that about? That's really about Abigail, not about Jezebel. But you can put those two passages together, and it looks like it's Bible, and it actually is Bible. They just don't go together. They've not been rightly divided. They've not been uh, 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 put together the way they ought to be put together. So these are just some examples of how that can be done to show us the context. Context is everything. Let's start looking at some passages. We're not going to look at a whole lot, but I want to look at enough tonight that you can get the idea and and use your your mind to think through context in different situations. We're going to start with some low-hanging fruit, I will call it, in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is where Jesus is talking about a particular topic. And it's for the reader to determine what that topic is to see if you can determine what Jesus is talking about. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. By the way, no matter what you're studying, you have to start at a certain point. But don't forget... To look before that point to see if there's anything in the immediate context or the greater context that might have some bearing on what you're reading at the point at which you begin. Verse 15 of chapter 18, Matthew's Gospel. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. What's he talking about? He's talking about a brother being in sin and what you're supposed to do about it. Verse 16, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every face may, or every fact may be confirmed. What's he talking about? He's talking about the same thing. If a brother sins, here's what you do about it. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What's he talking about? Talking about the same thing he talked about in the two previous verses. If a brother sins, here's what you do about it. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What's he talking about? He's talking about exactly what he's been talking about in the three previous verses. This is in the context of what happens when a brother sins. Verse 19, I say to you again, if two or three of you agree about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. What's he talking about? Same thing, same thing he's been talking about the whole time. Which is, what do you do when a brother sins? Verse 20. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. What's that talking about? Well, that's obviously talking about a worship assembly. You see? But how many times have you heard that passage applied? 
We're going on vacation, and there won't be many of us, but, but where two or three are gathered together in my name. Now, I will agree. If you go on vacation and two or three of you gather together in God's name to worship him, to have a devotional time, I believe he's going to be there with you. But that's not what this is talking about. And I think we're pulling it out of context when we try to say, this is our vacation text right here. Because this is a text about discipline in the church. In other words, Jesus is saying, if it gets to the point where you have to withdraw fellowship from one of your beloved brothers or sisters, in my name, I'm going to be there with you. We don't do that much anymore, though, do we? We don't withdraw fellowship from people who sin. In all my time of being a minister, I remember doing it once with a congregation. And it was hard. It was so hard that I took great comfort in this text. And I don't think they were really concerned with what the law said. I think all they were concerned with was what they thought the law said and their small view of the way things were. And so it says, he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? That is pretty simple logic, is it not? Who would not agree with that? Oh, I wouldn't do it on the Sabbath. I'd wait till the next day to pull my sheep out. And the other guy's going, no, sheep costs uh, X amount of Darius, uh, denarius rather. I'm going to pull him out today. That's what Jesus is reasoning, using to reason with them. You'd pull a sheep out of a ditch or a pit if it fell into a pit, even on the Sabbath. Why not a man with a withered hand? Why not your brother? Why not a human being created in in the image of God? His, His reasoning, as always, is impeccable. So he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. Now think about it. They're just sitting there on the Sabbath, and Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. And what did the man do? Stretched out his hand. What happened? It was healed. How much work? Did they see Jesus' work? There was no way to see Jesus' work. But it worked. That alone should have told them this man is from God. Nobody else can do Just like Nicodemus said in John chapter 3, nobody can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus observed that. It's observed later by others, the same basic observation. Nobody could do these things unless God was with him, could he? And they are seeing this, and they are missing it. Not only are they missing it, they continue to look for reason to accuse him. They're not just apathetic about, well, I don't know what's really going on here, but, you know, to each his own. No. Here's a guy who does good. But because he does it on the Sabbath, he's a sinner, and we need to find reason to accuse him. And so that's where they are. They completely miss the power of the sign of healing the man. Well, down to verse 22. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. We're, we're missing. I'm missing the prophecy that this is all about. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was 
This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I'm going to do something. What does God say he's going to do with him? I'm going to put my spirit in him. I'm going to put my spirit in him. And the spirit of God is the power by which Jesus is doing the miracles, doing the healings, performing the signs, if you will. It's the Holy Spirit that's doing these things that are the greatest proof of who he is. There were many who claimed to be Christ, but nobody did what Jesus did. Interestingly enough, others would report nobody spoke like this man because he spoke as one with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. Boy, isn't that a slam. (laughs) He talks like he's got authority. He's not like the scribes and Pharisees. (laughs) Wow. What if somebody said that about you? Oh. Holy Spirit is what's in question. Isaiah talked about it, and Jesus is using this prophecy to say, this is the spirit that God has put in me, and you see the distinction between this spirit and the spirit of these who are denying it. Then it says in verse 22, now we're to verse 22. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute brought to Jesus, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees saw it, what did they say? They said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And then there's this question. If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. What is Jesus saying? He's saying your sons who attempt to cast out demons will be your judges because you are attributing what I have done through the spirit of God to the devil himself. That's what they were doing. They would not be impacted. Their thinking would not change. They were so set in their ways. It's like Paul would write later to Timothy. Their consciences were seared as with a hot iron. And that's what Jesus is dealing with. And that, I believe, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. These guys were seeing the miracles and denying them, but not only denying them, attributing the work of the Holy Spirit of God in the miraculous to the devil himself. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. You and I don't see miracles like they saw. We don't see the supernatural working of God in the same way that they saw it. We don't see a man put forth his hand and have it immediately restored. We don't see people who are demon-possessed being cured. We don't see a man who was born blind have mud put in his eyes and wash it and then come away seeing. We don't see a man who's lame at the temple get up and jump and leap and rejoice in God because of what Peter and John did for him through the Holy Spirit. These are the things that God has been doing through his Holy Spirit. We're reading about them here And when people attribute that to the devil, that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We can't see those things today. I have every confidence that if you could, you'd be impacted by them to bring about faith. Because you have only read about them. You have read about them and you have faith. 
you're the one in the context of what Jesus was talking about. Speaking to his apostles, he said, blessed are you, especially Thomas, who has seen me and have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen. That's us. That's us. We haven't seen it. Remember that song we sang? Great song. We saw thee not. Uh, One of my favorite songs. By the way, I didn't realize how many of the songs about the Bible were favorite songs of mine until Bob led them tonight. Uh, They're great songs. So I, I hope you're looking at this and you're going, oh yeah, that makes sense. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is when you see the Spirit working and you blaspheme it. You attribute that to God or to the devil. That's, that's what we see in the context, if you will. And if you keep reading a little bit, follow on in the context. We get down to verse 41. Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repeat, uh, repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What's that mean? That means in the judgment, all those people in Jonah's day who repented at the preaching of Jonah. By the way, how did Jonah feel about all those people? If you'll pardon the expression, he hated their guts. That is how he felt about them. You read those four brief chapters and you'll see that's how Jonah felt. That's why he ran away from God. He wasn't afraid of God or preaching. He was afraid God would save the Ninevites. So he ran away. Uh, Man, maybe that's what we need to do to have a successful ministry. We just need to hate people. What, Tom? You better turn to Jesus or you're going to burn in hell. Boy, we'll just fill the church right up, won't we? Work for Jonah. (laughs) The thing was, he was preaching what God had given him to preach. That's what he did. And when he preached that, they repented. And those people who repented, having seen no miracle except Jonah himself, if you will, they're going to stand up in judgment and they're going to condemn these people who are not only denying the work of the Holy Spirit, but attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil himself. That is their blasphemy. That, I believe, is what's in context. Uh, but for, verse 42 as well. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So we've got the preaching of Jonah and we've got the wisdom of Solomon. Neither one of those connected to miracles. And yet people heard that preaching and heard the words of Solomon and they came to faith in God. And those people will rise up in judgment against these people who have attributed the work of the Spirit to the devil himself. That is what I believe blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. And I don't think we can do it today. Not that we would want to, but just to comfort you if you ever worry that you might do it. I don't think you can. All right. Well, there's another one down. Let's see, what else will we do? Oh, here's, here's another pretty easy one, Lucifer, in, in Isaiah chapter 14. Who's Lucifer? Don't say it. But if you read Isaiah 14, you'll see that Isaiah, or rather God through Isaiah, tells us exactly who Lucifer is. Now we're looking at chapter 14, but in chapter 13, you can pick up the context there. Isaiah is speaking to the Israelites about the captivity 
that they're going into through Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, and, and God is comforting his people with this message through Isaiah about how the Babylonians are going to pay for their mistreatment of the Israelites. That's what chapter 13 is about, and then you come into chapter 14, same thing. And you see this in verse 4 of chapter 14. That you will take up this taunt against, against who? Isaiah 14, 4, pretty clear, against the king of Babylon. Not against Satan, not against the devil, not against the serpent. Take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And you read, read, read right on down through the context until you get down to verse 12, where it says, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. And if in your, in, in your reference, your side reference, you'll probably see the word Lucifer. Son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. So he's talking about the king of Babylon. If you just back that, we're not going to read the whole context, but you read the whole context. And he hasn't broken context. He started talking about the king of Babylon. This is a taunt against the king of Babylon. And he calls him Lucifer. And when you read Daniel, where Daniel is recording What Nebuchadnezzar says, you get to chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is looking out over the kingdom, the great majestic kingdom with which he's been blessed. And who does he attribute that kingdom's power and might to? But himself. And so God cuts him down. And Daniel gets this vision of a tree, a great tree. It grew up and it, it... covered the whole earth and all manner of creatures and people were given shelter under that tree and ate of its fruit. And then that tree was cut down. But what was left? A stump. And from that stump, that tree grew again. What's that all about? Well, that's when God said, all right, Nebuchadnezzar, you think this is all about you? God struck him and and what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He became like an animal. He had His hair became like feathers, his nails became like claws. And for seven times, it doesn't say how long the seven times are, but the the context of seven times in scripture is a, a complete time. For seven times, Nebuchadnezzar stayed that way and he ate grass like an ox of the field. Now this is the king of Babylon this is happening to. And while this is happening to him, here's another amazing part of the story, perhaps more amazing than him becoming like an animal, Nobody took the kingdom while he was in this condition. He was like an animal until he came to his senses. And what did he do when he came to his senses but glorify God? And so when we're reading Isaiah 14, we're reading about the king of Babylon. He's the one called Lucifer. He's the one called son of the morning. He's the one who's attributed as a great king that's been given much but who got wrapped up in himself and he fell. So there's, there's another passage in context. Uh, let's do one that you'll hear a lot about if you talk to people in denominations. Go to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. It, it's so great to be able to study a passage of scripture in its context and find out Just what it says. Even if there's no controversy about it, looking at the context can give you the confidence that you're getting it just as God intended you to give it. Develop your your views and your opinions as you study the word 
by the context. And then later on, if you have to change, make sure you're changing only because there's something in the context you missed. So here we go. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Amen to that? Amen. Amen in its context. Not as a result of works, so that none may boast. Amen to that? Amen to that? I didn't earn anything by, no matter how much obedience I've practiced in my life, no matter how many good works I've done, I haven't earned a thing, you haven't earned a thing, and that's the point Paul's making. Our salvation is by the grace of God, we haven't earned a thing. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a passage that I have folks come back to time and time again to try to prove to me one thing and one thing only. And that one thing is, you don't need to be baptized. All you got to do is go to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and you'll see that baptism doesn't have anything to do with your salvation. It's by grace through faith. Now, wait a minute. Is it by grace through faith? Absolutely it is. That's what this text says. But what does that mean in its context? Does that mean baptism doesn't have anything to do with it? Well, in the first place, you need to look at baptism in its context. I'll say it again. I've said it plenty of times, but I'll say it again. There's nothing that's less of a work in the scriptures than baptism. Because you submit to every part of it. You let somebody lower you into the water and bring you back up. You don't baptize yourself. It's not a work that you do. It's not a work that somebody else does from which you earn anything. But, but where did we get baptism in the first place? Who taught us about baptism? Alexander Campbell. Thomas Campbell. Those guys back in the restoration, they invented baptism, didn't they? Oh, wait a minute. I'm missing it, aren't I? It was in the New Testament long before those guys were born. It was on the words of Jesus Christ, creator of heaven and earth. He gave it to his apostles. We didn't come up with it. He came up with it, gave it to them. It was the one thing he told them to practice. How? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing about Ephesians 2. Folks look at this and they say, see, in this context, you don't need baptism. But go to Acts chapter 19. This is called looking at the greater context. The greater context is if there is more information than you can find in the immediate context, then look at the greater context. Acts chapter 19, verse 1, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. Whoa, Ephesus? Came to Ephesus. The city where the church is that's received this letter we started in. And he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, well, in what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, what'd they do? They said, you don't need to be baptized to be saved. 
What did they do? They were baptized. There were about 12 guys. And they all were baptized when Paul told them, you need to be baptized in Jesus' name. How many of them argued that they didn't need to be baptized in Jesus' name because they had already been baptized by John or in John's baptism? How many argued that? None of them. So when you, when you read this letter to the church at Ephesus, you're reading a letter sent to people who was already know the church was founded on this one idea that you put your faith in Jesus and be baptized in his name like John told you to do, and you'll be his. You'll be his disciple. That's what they did. Acts 19 bears this out. And so don't go to the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and say, oh, you don't need baptism because chapter 2, 8 through 10, leaves it out. No. No. By the way, is there anything about baptism in the letter to the Ephesians? Well, yeah, go to chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes this, chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, in other words, he's, he's imprisoned when he writes this letter. He's imprisoned for the cause of the gospel. That's why he says, I'm, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm the Lord's prisoner. I've been doing his work and I've been put in prison. And it's, it's fine because this prison time allows me to write this letter. It's almost like all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are called according to his... It's almost like that's true, isn't it? I wonder where he got that at. Anyway. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How important is the Spirit to Jesus? We saw that in Matthew's reading of blasphemy against the spirit you better listen to the spirit and paul is talking about keeping the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and then he says this on the tail end of that there's one body one spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling one lord one faith one what one baptism now seeing as how he baptized these people in the name of Jesus in Acts 19. What one baptism do you think he's talking about? It's all in the context. It's all right here. Isn't it interesting? Now pray for people who don't see this. Pray for yourself that you'll continue to have your eyes opened by God to things that are true in the scriptures. And hold on to those things. Those things are precious. It's just like Jesus told in those parables. You're going through a field and you find a treasure in that field. What do you do? You sell everything you've got to have that treasure. This is part of that treasure. You're out shopping for a pearl and you find one better pearl than you could ever imagine existed. What do you do? Well, you sell everything you've got to have that pearl. This is part of that pearl. Hold on to it. Always approach the Bible with reverence. Always approach the Bible with reverence. This isn't just some book. This is the word of God. And when you read it, the author is with you every time. 
And if you ask him, he will help you. I'm not talking about giving you, but he will help you understand these things. You might still have to dig. You will have to dig. You'll have to search. That's how we learn things. These students that are getting rewards at the end of school, they probably aren't getting those because their parents did all their homework. I guess it's possible. But most of those kids worked hard. We need to work hard. Oh, man, my time is gone. I'm sorry. I got carried away with the... I'm just having a good time up here talking about these things. But this, these, you see the importance of context. Can you not? If you can't, I'll keep going. So what is it? Amen or not? Oh, you want me to stop. Okay, all right. We'll do that. Context. Context is everything. And tonight is one context. It's a Sunday evening. We're enjoying each other's company, having a fine worship assembly. But the judgment will be another context. Completely different context. Are you ready for the judgment? You might be ready to sit here and worship with your brothers and sisters, your friends. Outside of Christ, you're ready to do that. You're ready to have some ice cream. But when the Lord comes back, that's a context. That'll be the last context on this earth, and you've got to be ready. So if you're not ready tonight, let us know while we stand up and sing this song how we can help. Let's stand and sing.